0: Let's take our Bibles this morning as we come to our time to worship God through the study of His Word and return to our study of Revelation chapter 19. I must admit this morning as we get into the study of the Word, I was telling Debbie this week that I was struggling with my time this week in this particular passage because oftentimes as a pastor you... You uh, wonder sometimes or you struggle with God in prayer and say to Him, Lord, how how am I supposed to tell the people um, what You're telling them here and they have heard in so many ways and in so many other uh, thoughts in their own mind. I mean, what we read here is not all that difficult. And yet, God has for us to hear some things from it again. And so I was struggling with that this week and I pray that what God has given us this morning and what will be said will be profitable to all of us. I pray that what we see here will in fact do exactly what Russ prayed for us and that is rivet us and cause us to see God in ways that maybe we have never seen Him. We are continuing our look into the second coming of Jesus Christ. Just that alone ought to cause our minds to just... Explode with visions of what will take place, and here we are seeing it as it is given to the apostle John as he has been called really in vision to heaven from Patmos, where he has been exiled because of his stance on the truth, because of his stance for Jesus Christ in midst the community in which he is living at the time, and so this here is just really a thread as we look in Revelation chapter 19. It's a thread really in a, in a greater tapestry, of you, if you will, that develops the full picture of the return of Jesus Christ. We read a little bit about that in Matthew 25 this morning and what will take place in the return of Jesus Christ as he separates those who believe upon him that are on the earth from those who do not believe upon him. So the entire event is something truly amazing. And of course you notice that is what I have entitled this entire section. It is what will be the primary beyond comprehension event of all time. And all the world will know exactly what is happening. This is history's catastrophic end. This is the end of humanity, at least as we know it, and it is according to the mercy of God and according to the grace of God that we know it ahead of time, that God by His grace and through His mercy has chosen to tell us ahead of time. God could have left us in the proverbial dark. God could have never revealed any of this in the book of Revelation as to what is happening in the end. He was under no obligation to tell us. God in His divine sovereignty had no obligation in Himself to give mankind any information concerning future things. But because of His grace and because He is a God of mercy and His desire is to save, that He has told us what is to come. He has warned us and we have been looking into all of this over the last few weeks and it is shocking to any thinking person. Jesus Christ will return. He will return. In fact... 2 Peter gives us a glimpse into the reality of what people have said throughout the centuries about the return of Jesus Christ. And we're not going to spend time here in 2 Peter, but I just want to highlight this to you. In 2 Peter chapter 3, it says, This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior by your apostles. In other words, I I want to stir you up so that you remember what we told you. The purpose of this is for reminder. Peter goes on to say, know this first of all. That in the last days, mockers will come with mocking. People will be mockers. They will be mocking what is being said will happen. And they're following after their own lusts. That's what their mocking is. It's not mocking because what is said about what will come is untrue. It's just simply mocking because they're following after their own lusts, their own desires. And they are saying, where is the promise of his coming? That's what they're mocking. Really? Christ is going to come? Really? Jesus is coming back? Really? Where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. In other words, all we've ever known is what we've known. And it seems to have gone on in times past, what makes us believe and what would cause us to believe that it will ever change in the future. Where's the promise of His coming? what they're mocking. Peter says, for when they maintain this, when they think that way and follow after their own desires, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago. And the earth was formed out of water and by water. In other words, it, it escapes their existence what God has already done. In fact, they have suppressed that truth in their own unrighteousness, following after their own lust, as Romans 1 says. And so this very reality is escaping their notice as well, that according to what God has said, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed by God, by the word of God, out of what God had formed it from, through which The world at that time was even destroyed, being flooded by water. You know what escapes their notice? The flood. Creation and the flood escapes their notice, as if those are historical fables. Never happened. And Peter says, because that escaped their notice, even the present heavens and the earth, by the word, are being reserved for fire. Kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But don't let this one fact escape your notice. That with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise. As some count slowness. But he's patient toward you. Because God is not desiring. For any to perish, but all to come to repentance. You see, God is a merciful God. God is a gracious God. And God is continuing in His patience. And His patience is continually being assaulted by humanity. And God's patience continues on until all those whom God has chosen to save are saved. And just because that hasn't happened yet doesn't mean it will not happen. That's Peter's point. That's why in verse 10 he says the day of the Lord will come like a thief. It will come when you don't even realize it. It will come when you don't even know it. The heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat in the earth and its works will be burned up. What sort of people ought you to be because of these things in all holiness, holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? You see, our response to these things is not what the mocker's response is. Our response is to hasten the coming of this very day. Jesus Christ will return, but He will not return the second time as Savior. He is not coming back as Savior. He is coming back as Judge. Jesus Christ is not coming back so that he might seek and save that which is lost. Next time Christ comes, he is coming with the intent of judgment. We have seen much judgment take place throughout our entire study of Revelation. But none will suppress what is to come. Much of humanity with all of their issues, and all of the rejection against God, they will physically, even some, survive all of the previous judgments that we've seen through the tribulation period in our study. But none who reject Jesus Christ will survive this end. For there is coming the sudden wonder in our amazing supreme Ruler. There is coming the great surprise in an amazing supper that God has prepared. Not the marriage of the Lamb supper. This is an entirely different supper. And there is a beyond comprehension moment in an amazing slaughter that the earth has never known. Let me just read this portion of scripture for us again in our hearing. Beginning in verse 11, Revelation chapter 19, and I saw heaven opened, and Behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head many diadems, and he has a name written "...which no one knows except himself. And He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white, clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he might smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron." treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God in order that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, small and great. They saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. The beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. And these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And All the birds were filled with their flesh. a graphic scene. The faithful and righteous one, Jesus Christ, is coming to judge and he has everything he needs to carry out this judgment. We saw last Lord's Day, he he sees everything. He has eyes that are a flame of fire. They are all-consuming. They are all-illuminating. They are are the omniscience of God in knowing all things and seeing all things. This is Jesus Christ. Nothing is hidden from His glare. Nothing is hidden from His knowing. He sees down to the deepest recesses, even to the secret places of a man's heart, and knows exactly what is there. Nothing will escape His notice. Jesus Christ always... And also carries all the authority necessary. His head, he has on his head many diadems. Not that there is a train of crowns following him. But that just implies the reality of all authority being in Christ. He has every authority to carry out the judgment necessary upon the earth. He sees it all and has authority over it all. And he has resources of power available only to him is a name upon which no one knows except himself. No one knows except how. How does that work in the Godhead? I don't know. How is it that Jesus Christ can know something that potentially the, the rest of the Godhead don't know and certainly no human being knows? I don't know. But somehow, here it says that He has a name written which no one knows, and it doesn't stop there. It it, it emphasizes the reality of him knowing by saying, except himself. It's an emphatic way of saying it. God is known by his name, the resources of God. Uh, All the characteristics of God are described by his very name. Here the reality is that there are resources to Christ in him to carry out this judgment that is known to him. And he is dressed for war, remember verse thirteen He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood dipped really doesn't give us the whole idea. It kind of sounds like you're putting your toe in the water. That's not the word here by the way. The word is the same word we use for that's used other places in the New Testament for baptizing. Uh, this is full immersion. this is the the robe of God being fully dipped fully put into the to the blood of war he's covered with blood it's like the priest on the day of atonement when he would just simply be there at the temple slaughtering animals all day long covered with blood this is christ he is covered with the blood of war verse 14 continues to tell us that those who are saved are and in the heavens are sharing in the glorious triumph with Christ notice and the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen white and clean were following him on white horses this is this is somewhat of a, a parenthetical interject here into the to the flow of the description of the supreme ruler that is coming to judge Jesus Christ who is the one who is coming to judge this is almost a little parenthetical Uh, encouragement to all those who are saved. The armies which are in heaven are coming with Christ. These are not angels. Because we already know that we are, what we're seeing here is simply the greater explanation of what has been said in chapter 17 and verse 14. You can just turn back in your Bible a page probably and you'll see this. Remember at the end of chapter 17 was the end of the destruction of the the false system of religion. And in verse 14, he says, These will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them. Why? Because He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with Him are the called, the chosen, the faithful. You see, these are those whom are saved. That's who the chosen are. That's who the faithful are. That's who the the saved are. And so when you get here to chapter 19 and you read about this, they're dressed in the same thing. It's white and clean linen. It's purity. It is this description of the cleansing that God has done. And they're riding with the same power, coming in on the the heels of Christ, and they're with Christ. This is the... Glory of our return with Christ. Those who come with Christ are the elect. They are those whom God has chosen to save. Chapter 14 says they are the faithful. So when we read verse 14 here in chapter 19, this is the great army of the saved. and We, the raptured church, are part of that great army. We haven't heard about the church since chapter 3. Why? Because the tribulation is primarily for drawing the Jewish people back to Himself. God is reestablishing His promise uh, that He had made to the, to the patriarchs, and He is now drawing Israel back to Himself. The church has been taken out. The, the graciousness of God saving the Gentiles through the church has been finished church is gone in heaven prior to the tribulation starting. And so in chapter 3, you don't, after chapter 3, from chapter 4 all the way through, you don't even see the church mentioned. And then you see it again gloriously joining here with all the rest of those who have been chosen to be saved from old time till up to this point, even those who have died during the tribulation who have gone into heaven here returning with Christ. As he rides back, we are with him. In fact, Jude 14 says, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. Ten thousands of his saints. That's just the terminology there that means myriads upon myriads upon myriads. And so the church and all the different saints throughout the ages share in the triumph of Jesus Christ. So when Jesus Christ comes as the judge, he will come as the supreme ruler and he will judge. And all of those who are believers in the heavens will be with him and we will share in it. And we will be witnesses to it all. What a joy that will be for us. What a beauty that will be to us. And notice, notice the impact of his judgment. The impact of his judgment will come swiftly. It will come severely. Notice in verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword. Why? So that he might smite the nations. How will Christ carry out this judgment? That's the question in our minds as we think about the impact. How will he do it? Well, he's going to do it first by what comes out of his mouth. Out of his mouth, notice, from his mouth comes a sharp sword. It's the picture or the symbol of that of a battle sword. That's the idea here. It's not as if Christ has this metal coming out of his mouth. That's not what's happening here. Remember, this is prophetic language giving us a picture of of what will take place. This is the, the picture that John is seeing. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. This is the battle sword, the rompheia. Yeah, in the original language, this is the long, double-edged, battle-axe kind of sword. The kind the Roman soldier might have in battle. And when he swung it, and swung it efficiently, as he would have been trained to do, it would sever most anything in one swipe. That's the picture. When Christ comes, he will conquer with the sword of his mouth. What comes out of the mouth of Christ? The word of God. He will smite the nations with the word. I find this very very encouraging to us as we hear what the scriptures are, right? Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12, the the Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It divides down to the joints and marrow, to the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The Word of God is such a precision instrument, such a a, a, a divinely strong, powerful instrument that it gets down to the very things that men think they can hide. It will divide the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It doesn't just tell you what actions are right and what's wrong. This isn't a book of, hey, this is a do, this is a don't. Certainly there are plenty of those, but it, it gets down to the reality of why you do what you do. The thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's sharp like that. God's Word penetrates to those places in the human heart that no one sees. None of us could ever even look at, and even if we could see it all, we'd be sickened to our very core. God decrees and judges the thoughts of a man. The Word of God scrutinizes, shines its light upon the attentions of the heart of man, and the judgments of the Word of God upon that are always true and always right. The Bible says in Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 9 that the heart is more wicked than anything else. It's right. It's right. So when Jesus Christ returns, His Word will strike the nations to their very core. And they will be laid bare. Ephesians chapter 6. We run to that, don't we, as Christians, right? That's the armor of God. We're to put on the armor of God. And it says, look, gird yourself with the sword of the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit. And the word "sword" there is a different word than what you find here. It's not the same word. In Revelation chapter 19 is this this massive battle axe kind of double-edged sword. There, in 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 Ephesians chapter 6, it's it's a different word. It's "makarios." It's it's the the little dagger, the little close hand-to-hand combat kind of sword. In other words, the Scriptures as a whole and individually in every little part are like a a surgical knife. They're like the, the surgical instrument that exposes every sinfully diseased place in the heart of man. That's what it does. You don't want to have heart surgery done with a butter knife. You don't want to have it done with a chainsaw. You want to have it done with a surgical knife in the hands of a professional who's only going to remove exactly what needs to be removed. Nothing is more precise. Nothing is more powerful. Christ is coming like that. He's coming with His Word. I love that. I love that. we like for Christ to come with some kind of big double-barreled 20-millimeter cannons on both sides. It's just... Laying everybody low. You know what Christ is coming with? The very thing you have sitting on your lap. He's coming with the word of God. And he will strike every anti-Christian with the word of God. Is it any wonder that Paul said in Philippians chapter, uh, uh, Philippians that every tongue will confess, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is lord they'll have no option secondly it says he is coming with a rod he will rule them verse 15 with a rod of iron i find this fascinating fascinating because the word rod here is the same word where you here in the New Testament and other places where it talks about the elders, they are to be shepherds, where Jesus Christ in John 10 is the shepherd, the great and good shepherd. It's the word for shepherd. The word rod here is the word for shepherd because the the rod, the staff of a shepherd it, uh, was the picture of a shepherd. When you look at the, 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 the rod of a shepherd with the crook on it, you know exactly what that is. You know that means shepherding. That's the word here. He will shepherd them with a rod of iron. I think this is very interesting because normally a shepherd's staff was was wood. It, it was hard, but it had some, some pliability to it, and it was used by the shepherd to lead and to, to gently persuade the sheep in the direction they were to go. There were times often that the shepherd might have to go and be a little more diligent, even pick the sheep up and carry them away. But notice here that Christ will have a rod of iron. He's going to shepherd them with a, with a stiff rod, with, with an unbreakable rod, with an unbendable rod, and with it he will rule them. This is hard and crushing. Christ will come to shepherd with a staff that will not be gentle. The good shepherd of John chapter 10 will come as the destroying shepherd. Why? Why is he going to destroy them? just like we heard in Matthew chapter 25 when Russ read that passage, because they are not sheep. They're not his own, as John 10 says. With this rod, the sheep are coming. They're going to come before them, and the, or the goats will come before them. The real sheep are coming with him. Remember verse 14, the armies which are in heaven, they're coming with him, and they are protected by him, and he is using this rod to destroy the enemy. That tells us that the judgment of Christ will be instant. It will be swift. It will be righteous. I like that because it's very difficult in our day and age to find justice that is righteous today. Judgment that is righteous. Where true justice is in our day and age both slow and unbalanced. The Godhead has given the law and Christ will execute it. And he will execute it with absolute sovereign perfection. So he has the word from his mouth. He has the, the shepherd's rod that is like iron. It is unbreakable. Unbendable. And then third... He will speak his word, he will wield the staff, and then he will tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. My wife and I this weekend went and saw Exodus, Gods and Kings, the new Hollywood thriller or whatever. Uh, If I were you, I would not really waste your money. Interesting. all I can say. It was interesting. It had some biblical accuracy, I guess, if I could use the word accuracy, and then it took its Hollywood way. (laughs) But no Hollywood writer could come up with a more graphic picture than what you see right here. In ancient times, it's interesting, in ancient times, grapes were collected, put into a large vat or on a, a big stone slab, And either men would climb into the vat and crush them or they would roll a big, large rock over them and crush the grapes so that the juice would come bursting out and go everywhere and drain into the the vats that they were getting the juice. Now take that picture and go right here with it because this is the scene described by heaven. As Christ comes to carry out divine judgment. And the winepress of God is full. It's not full with grapes. It's full with the picture here is humanity. It's full with those that that he has laid the swath of his sickle across the earth, and the grapes have been gathered. The, the humanity, the, the rejectors of him have been gathered, and they are thrown into the winepress of God and is full. And, and it is full to the very brim, and his heated wrath bursts out. Christ is the one who is treading the winepress of the fierce wrath of God. Fierce wrath, thumos orge. That is the word where we get thermometer. What's a thermometer do? It, ra- it, it measures the temperature. This is the, the rising temperature of God's breathing anger. And righteous anger being poured out. God's patience has been tried. It has been tried throughout the ages by the wickedness and rebellion and blasphemy of men. And Now here in Revelation chapter 19, the gathered armies are there against God. And they are but grapes. Christ is about to tread the winepress. What an impact. What an impact. And where the warrior would normally carry his sword on his side, draped across his side, here there is a name written, verse 16, on his robe and on his thigh. That's across here. He has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Behind the action of the sword lies the authority the mightiest sovereign of all creation. I was reading this and I was thinking of Pilate's mocking words when he stood before Christ as he was here as the God with us, Emmanuel, standing there at this mock trial that humanity had and God is standing there willingly being tried by humanity that he has created. And Pilate asks him the very question, Are you a king? Here is the answer of heaven. He is not just a king. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. He is the absolute sovereign one. So all the enemies are to be judged. That's where rejected mercy and rejected grace always go, doesn't it? It always goes to that place. Rejected grace, rejected mercy always goes to the place where judgment happens. When Christ came the first time, they killed Him. They rejected His mercy. They rejected His grace. They said, we want none of you. They killed Christ. They hung Him on a cross. The people openly blasphemed God. Mankind has become more and more wicked as time has marched on. So in the end, is God's answer. The wickedness of men reaches the pinnacle. It gets to the place and Christ, the executioner, comes back to execute. We, We don't need to be confused. The picture is very clear. There is no, hey, by the way, there's this middle zone that's a safe zone and if you get into the safe zone, you'll be okay. There is none of that. The picture is clear. You either are for Christ or you're against Christ. So in the return of Christ, you have this amazing supreme ruler. Secondly, you have this amazing supper gathering. This will go quickly. Notice, I saw an angel standing in the sun. Verse 17, he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid heaven, come. Assemble for the great supper of God. This is intriguing. This is very intriguing to me because the battle of the great day of God the Almighty is only seen here, as we read Revelation 19, it's only seen from the aftermath. You notice we see the the supreme ruler coming and and then we don't have any of the battle details. We just see the aftermath. Why? Why? Because this really isn't a battle at all. At least one in the classic sense that we know of battles. This is simply a complete and utter destruction of all the satanic forces from just one word of Christ. If you don't think the word of God is powerful, folks, look at that. Christ will speak the word and it's done. If you don't believe Genesis and God speaking the word into, speaking everything that exists into existence, everything being upheld by the word of his power, then nothing will convince you about God. Because this is the end. You already know who God is from the beginning. And the completeness of which these forces are destroyed is seen here in this this, just these two simple verses in this graphic way. It's seen in God through his angel calling all of the carnivore, uh, carnivorous birds to gather for a feast. This is incredible. In fact, several years ago, probably in the early 90s, I was privileged to hear this book taught. and When we got to this point, uh, there was given some very helpful information as to how God might do this. You ever think about that? All the birds in mid-heaven are going to come and assemble, all the carnivores. How, how are they going to do that? Right. Remember, we're speaking about Israel here. Small piece of land over in the Middle East. It's only about 150 miles long, north to south and and maybe 50 miles wide. Not a big piece of property. But Israel is known as the land between, by the way. That's what it's known as, the land between. Why? Because it's a land bridge between Africa to the south and Europe to the north. You have the Mediterranean Sea to the west. You have the the deserts to the east. So the real passageway from north to south is through Israel. In fact, in Solomon's day, that was called the king's highway. And God, think about this, God, by his creative design, has made it such that all of the migration patterns of the birds from north to south, south to north, and even some from the west to south and west to north, all fly over and through and near Israel. What a coincidence. In fact, birds are such a great problem in Israel that every airline pilot that flies into Tel Aviv worldwide and all of the airline Air Force pilots of Israel are trained to fly at certain altitudes at certain times of the year in order to avoid the migration patterns in the area. Because bird strikes are very prevalent. And so the Israelis have done massive research on the birds over there, and they have learned at what times of year the birds migrate and certain things. So they have trained their pilots, and every airline pilot that flies into that way is trained on what altitudes to fly at in order to avoid all that. I found that very fascinating. God has been so meticulous. God has been so meticulous in the ordering of His creation that He is planning even this very event that He has now programmed already since the creation of the bird. He has programmed into the very DNA of that very creature that they would fly over that region. It's not going to be a problem for God to call the birds there. By the way, when it says mid-heaven there, that just means the area that birds fly in. That's all that means. Mid-heaven, what's above us and what's below the upper heavens, bird altitudes. And this angel cries to them, come, assemble for this great feast. There is a terrible day. And standing in stark contrast to the subdued sun, because remember, during during all of the the judgments, the sun is going dark, and as every eye is focused on the return of Jesus Christ, this angel stands there in bright contrast to all that, and he calls the vultures and every meat-eating bird to begin to circle above. Come, come on, gather. There's going to be a meal for you in short order. You say, why should they come? Verse 18, in order that you might eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses. And of those who sit on them in the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. It's a gruesome scene to even contemplate. I hope you heard the word flesh. It's mentioned five times, just that one verse. All of the social distinctions that man places emphasis upon are now completely gone, no matter what your status, no matter who you are, no matter how much you have, no matter how much money you have, no matter what position you hold. All rejectors of Christ are now reduced to mere pieces of flesh. And, by the way, just in case you're wondering, this is not annihilationism. No one is ever annihilated. This is simply death. This is simply death. Hebrews 9, verse 27, It has been appointed to man once to die, and then comes judgment. This is just their appointment to death. Their final judgment is still to come. You say, when is that going to come? That's going to come a thousand years from this point. Why is that? Because Christ is going to rule on the earth for a thousand years and they have to wait till the final day of judgment which is the great white throne judgment that we'll see in the next chapter in verse 11. And I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence the earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened and another book was opened which is the book of life and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Sea gave up her dead. Hades gave up its dead. Death and Hades itself were thrown into the lake of fire. Hades is not hell, by the way, folks. That's just a place where God is going to keep people until the day of final judgment. And no, don't confuse that with the Catholic doctrine of purgatory because that's not even a doctrine in the Bible. So their bodies here become food for birds Shocking, really shocking that mankind would choose to face our amazing sovereign king as judge. Shocking that God has prepared it so that their dead bodies will, in fact, become the food of carnivorous birds. But then there's this third, John sees the amazing slaughter. Sees the amazing slaughter. Verses 19 to 21. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. We know who that is. That's the Antichrist. That's the false prophet. That's all the kings who have come to join together with him. they're there now surrounding Israel, surrounding Jerusalem and that place to try to do away with God once and for all. And verse 20 says, and the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed signs in his presence. So the confrontation takes place, the battle of Armageddon, Satan and his followers stand against Christ. They're attempting to defy heaven. Psalm 2 says, the nation's getting an uproar and God just sits in heaven and laughs. I thought that somewhat ironic. This here, folks, is the laughter of God in action. God just laughs. Go ahead, do your thing, reject me. And through his divine laughter, he immediately seizes the ringleaders, the beast and the false prophet. The word for seized is violent arrest. They are violently arrested. Quickly arrested. Uh, they are they are taken. As if they they didn't even realize what was happening, those who had carried out such deception and through it ruled over the day are immediately apprehended, and all of the armies of Satan now are standing there leaderless. You want to get to the to the main deal. You want to stop the armies, then cut the head off of the serpent. I believe that even here, the deception is so deep, so ingrained, that even now men think that Satan can help them. Even here, with the beast and the false prophet gone, they still believe Satan will help even though his agents have been divinely arrested. The beast and the false prophet, the great deceiver, the anti-God, the one who claimed worship to go to himself, And his mouthpiece, they are thrown with violence. Down at the end of verse 20, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. Somehow and in some way, God through his divine sovereignty and through their execution has, in an immediate sense, doesn't even even kill them first. He snatches them up and throws them alive into the lake of fire. By the way, this is the first mention of that place in Revelation. It's the first place we've heard of it. But it's the final eternal hell. That's what Lake of Fire is. Now listen, there is a hell. There is a hell. Jesus spoke of hell more than, than he spoke about money. Uh, There is a hell. There's always been a hell. It has been a place created by God. It's always been a place of torment. And it was created as as a place for Satan and his demons. And this is its final form, the lake of fire. The first two to populate hell are the Antichrist and his false prophet. Of course, later on in chapter 20, the devil and all his demons... Will be sent there because it's ultimately been prepared for them. And here's the really sad part. Here's the really sad part. All of the unbelievers at the end of the Great White Throne Judgment, they will be taken and sent to the lake of fire. And they will be there in torment with Satan. And with the false prophet, and with the antichrist, the beast, forever and ever and ever. It's where they will spend their eternity. Say, so what happens to the rest of the people who weren't killed after the, or, or that were still there after the beast and the false prophet is seized? Verse 21 the rest were killed. They are killed with the sword that came from the mouth of him who sat upon the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh it becomes a carnivorous feeding frenzy no roar of gunfire no clash of armor quick and silent the death dealing sword that comes from the lord's mouth will sweep through the ranks of the rejectors and no one will survive the only ones who will even come through this at all, will be those who are the elect. When heaven's justice is vindicated, then the darkest day of human history will come to a close. As I was studying this, I was thinking of James chapter 1. James trying to write about what true faith looks like and James says in James chapter 1, verse 15, and sin, when it is accomplished, when sin comes to its full fruition, you know what it does? It brings forth death. That's the best sin can do. And that's what we see here. This is sin to its final end. What a graphic scene. Every time I read this, every time I'm studying this, I'm being reminded of why God told us this. He told us this so that we might know ahead of time. Jesus told the disciples in the Gospels, I'm telling you these things so that you might know ahead of time. Why? So that we might be fully, completely energized to give people the only way to escape. That's why. It's not so that we can sit around and go, boy, I wonder if today's the day. That's not the issue. God told us this so that we might be energized to tell people, listen, this is what's to come and here's the way of escape. It's in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Who would ever desire to be among those who reject? Who? And Yet many will. But God has made those who believe Ministers of reconciliation, Paul said. We are ministers of reconciliation. That is our job. That is our task. We have the answer. We have the answer to the only way of escape, and that is through the good news of Jesus Christ, our Savior. He is real. Death is real. This moment is real. And God told us about it so that we might be that flashing light of warning with gospel truth to others. We can't save them. But we can and we must be the foghorn. We must blow in a sea of sin, in the fogniest of sin. We must blow with loudest voices. So that they might not crash on the rocks of unbelief. That's why God told us this. The next event in the chronology of Revelation. Is the establishment of Christ as king on the earth for a thousand years. We'll get to that next next time. Would you pray with me? Father. Father. graphic stuff incredible to even get a glimpse at it I wonder sometimes had you told us every little detail would we even be able to read it would we be able to even absorb any of it would our eyes have to be turned away at the gruesome reality of what is to come Yet you have told us what you have told us for the sake of us being ministers of reconciliation. That's why we're here this morning. We want to be equipped. We want to know these things. We want to be able to tell others of what is to come. Surely there's even in our midst those who who have acquiesced to the intellectual assent of knowing Jesus Christ. They they believe facts, but they don't really believe with faith maybe been, they're sitting here deceived this morning, thinking they're okay, thinking they're part of those who, who know Christ by faith, but really they're just playing a game, convincing themselves, certainly not convincing anyone else, and surely not convincing you. And so, Lord, we pray that, that these things would be on everyone's heart. For those who truly know you, that these would be on their heart, that they might be propelled to share the ministry of and grace of you to save through your Son, Jesus Christ. To those who are here and playing games with faith or playing games with their knowledge of you or saying they know you but really don't, Lord, may this be a reality upon them that they will face the eternal judge. If they have not placed faith in Jesus Christ, turn their backs on themselves and their sin and all that they hold dear to themselves for the sake of their own life before you and entrust themselves to you. Maybe maybe there's even somebody here who's never heard this. Maybe this is all new. Maybe they're sitting there in their own heart of hearts even saying, who is this guy? What in the world is he even talking about? Lord, we pray that you would open their eyes Cause the blinding scales of sinfulness to fall from their eyes and help them to see the truth as it is. Help them not push it away and suppress it in their own unrighteousness, but that they would embrace it and see their sin, turn from it and embrace Jesus Christ. That's our hope, our desire. And so we say, Lord Jesus, come. Come quickly even. And at the same time we pray, Lord, save this day. For this day is the day of salvation for all who would believe. And So that's our prayer. In and through your Son and to his glory, we pray.